Happy Friday, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Ellen Pogamiller with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Catherine Bishop, president of OEA. Fried Okra is a weekly podcast where we get together to talk about public education issues in Oklahoma. We hope you'll join us every Friday. And this morning, we are joined um, by Representative Logan Phillips. Morning, Representative Phillips. Morning. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah. Well, we are um, disappointed that you won't be in the legislature next year, but we don't think your work is done. So (laughs) kind of tell us about what are your next steps? Well, you know, unfortunately, I did lose my election. We had a pretty substantial change in my district. Uh, lost 84% of it during the census. Uh, wow. And uh, it's unfortunate. But, no, I, I don't plan on going away anytime soon. Uh, I'm a career teacher with 18 years of advocacy work. I run a nonprofit uh, focused on education. And, of course, I'm a college professor. Uh, so to say I'm going to silence myself is probably... A misnomer. <laughs> so tell us a little tell us a little bit about yourself and your education background. I'm fascinated by that. <laughs> well, um, I never thought I would be have an education background. I always wanted to be a soldier, so I joined the military at 17. Um, I had no desire to go to college or be an academic in any way, shape, or form. Uh, of course, the world sometimes has different plans for you. So I have a bachelor's degree from OSU in business and information technology, and then I decided I didn't want to be an IT guy, uh, so I became a secondary degree with uh, vocational education. I started teaching at Meridian Technology Center for a short period of time before I left the country and went overseas, and I wound up being a math teacher in Taiwan in a comprehensive high school for several years. Uh, came home to visit one time uh, and got offered a scholarship to go get a master's degree in teaching, learning, and leadership with a focus on virtual education, and uh, became a virtual education teacher at the Tulsa Boys Home and taught there for about six years, uh, created one of the state's very first online virtual programs, uh, projected that out to other schools, and uh, from there, I got another master's degree in uh Leadership. Oh, no. Uh, sorry, they started to fall together. Pedagogical School <laughs> Curriculum Research and Design from OSU Tulsa and became a college professor who teaches business and IT. Uh, so sort of a big circle to lead me right back to where I started. <laughs> that is fascinating. So quick question. I'm going to take us down a rabbit hole real quick, just for a second. So during the pandemic, you know, we had moved to distance learning, much virtual um, how'd we do? <laughs> Our teachers are incredible people <laughs> that had no active training to start this off and did the absolute best that they possibly could. Uh, my original virtual education was teaching teachers how to teach online and creating those programs to do mixed methods. And uh, uh, I forget what the new terminology they're calling them now, all of classes, online life and whatnot. Um, we did fantastic for what we were given. Uh, There's definitely some missteps and some gigantic holes were shown. In fact, as a state legislator, that allowed me to really push for broadband. Yeah. Uh, the state, we've got really focused on it because no one thought it was an issue until everyone went home at the same time. And yeah. so we started really focusing and working on fixing some of those big infrastructure projects because everyone was on home. But our schools did the best they can with the resources they had and the infrastructure that was in place. Um, there's definitely 
going to be longstanding effects to, from that pandemic for this generation of students mm-hmm. uh, going forward. And it changed the culture of the I'm a college professor. So those kids are in high school for the last three years are now in my classes and they are a different breed. <laughs> <laughs> they, they really lost, you know, talking with educators around the state, what we're seeing is there's this, we forget. Yeah, we knew there was disruption to academic, but there's also disruption to their social and emotional well-being and development. As oh, well. Absolutely. Uh, the ability to deal with things face on in person um, really took a massive hit. Uh, so those cultures that they need to have to be able to work in the workforce, they're having to relearn. Yeah. Uh, so I said, we did the best we could, but there are some negative effects that we're feeling in the college environment and that our workers, our employers are feeling in the uh, work environment. Yeah from students that spent all of their social time at home without a lot of uh, experiences and engagement that they really needed during that time frame. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit, I, you know, we've kind of watched your work on um, broadband because OEA covers schools all across the state. And so we do go into communities where that access is so limited. So what what has been your focus on, you know, providing more broadband across the state? Well, you know, I came up to the Capitol with one goal. I, I was a completely unknown person, had no political ties. I moved to the country and realized there was no internet and I wanted to fix that issue. And I, I would say in my four years, I think we will have that issue fixed in the next couple of years. Uh, when I came in, we had close to 250,000 students that didn't have connections at home. Uh, they could not go home and learn at all. Uh, there, there was an internet in the downtown districts, the public libraries closed, of course, when the uh, schools uh, closed. And so we had a huge population of Oklahoma. You know, we were 50th in the nation in connectivity, uh, which is dumbfounding. Like Alaska had better internet connectivity than us. Uh, uh, it was devastating for everything from our economic centers to our education centers to just our culture. Our, our families were there in uh, retirement villages, nursing homes got isolated, locked out from everybody. Uh, uh, we worked on one group that had uh, Alzheimer's that you don't need perpetual connectivity to maintain mem- memory. Well, they got locked in. And so how do you get to somebody that has Alzheimer's with no internet connection and you can't enter? So getting those nursing homes connections was a huge deal. Um, and like I said to a lot of people, the one good thing that came out of COVID is that every one of my leadership went home at the same time and tried to jump on a Zoom for the first time in their life and realized (laughs) that they had no connection at their home. Uh, That magically there are three kids, their wife running their business and watching TV. Um, It couldn't be done. So I started getting phone calls immediately. Okay, how do we fix this? You're the one that's been blabbering about it and yelling. (laughs) We thought it was all funny cat videos. And actually this is real. So uh, I got carte blanche control and they a lot of trust put into me by leadership, McCall and uh, Pro Tem Treat and all those guys between me and Senator Lee Wright. And we made a massive plan and uh, we've instituted that plan. In fact, uh, I'm, even though I lost, I'm still finishing out my term. I was at the Capitol all this week trying to finish yeah. up those ARPA projects. We think we will get broadband out to 95% of all homes in Oklahoma in the next five years. Wow. Uh, that is astoundingly good and on top of that we've created programs like the osu it the fiber line technician programs where our kids can start creating the broadband networks for the rest of the nation those are sixty thousand dollar jobs with a six-month certificate and so oklahoma can be the heartland of expansion for an infrastructure that will take us in the new industrial revolution it's it's an amazing time frame for oklahoma 
going from 50th, we've already moved up to 24th. And from 24th, we are going up as high as I can possibly get us. So we're wow. moving from broadband, from being a luxury to a necessity, just we're the moving. same as, as, as electricity. It should be everywhere. It should be everywhere. And it, it has not been a luxury in the last 15 years. Just people didn't realize it. Yeah. Uh, you can't do business without broadband. You can't educate if your students can't get the resources, the homework, the grades. Uh, the foundational pieces of our society, from medical to educational to economic, all rely on that infrastructure. Wow. Yep. So as you know, one of the things you talk about is you really are um, going to start focusing on data-driven policy. And for anybody who follows your Facebook page, um, I being one of them. Which I love. It's so amazing. Yeah. And, and I, you know, you can tell your, your focus has been on how do we let people understand the numbers and how they should impact policy in a way that's super easy to congest. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've been told many times in my life, I am a blunt individual. <laughs> uh, I take the uh, army beat that into me, that uh, if there's a goal, we figure out how to accomplish the goal, we accomplish the goal, we then check the goal, we modify, and then we move forward. You know, uh, it's the basic premise of the military. Uh, we are always moving forward. In fact, it's the, the slogan of the sappers, uh, <laughs> you know, always forward. Um Data-driven is the only method that I can possibly do. I, I can say I feel like something should be this way, one way or the other, all day long, and I think that's a stupid way of doing it because everyone feels something different. But if you look at numbers and you look at statistics and research, you can actually project out, that shows you exactly where the hole is, where the actual problem is, and where the tendrils are uh, because we sometimes make great bills. But the side effects of those bills are worse than the actual helping piece of the bill. Yeah. So if you do the research, the statistics, and the data, you can get through all the junk keywords being thrown out and actually see what the big impact. Like a, a big one I'm pushing on is the federal money. You know, everyone talks about we're not going to accept federal money. The federal <laughs> government doesn't have any money. Uh, the federal government has never had any money. The federal government has your money. <laughs> I love so, what I heard you say that the other day. I loved it. I was like, Yes, uh, that's what it is. Simple concept. I want Oklahoma's money, and we are a donor state. So we spend, or we send less federal money up than we receive. So we're not just receiving Oklahoma's money back. We're receiving other states that are wealthier than ours money back to help our students. So why would we not take every penny we send to federal money right back and use it for our kids? Right. That I, that, I can prove that definitively with numbers. I can show you the numbers. They're verifiable. They're transparent. They're engaged. They're accessible. I can tell you right now that you are definitively wrong on this statement. Stop pursuing this pathway. Yeah. We want our money back in Oklahoma. Yeah. If you don't want it spent in California, fine. Bring it back here yeah. <laughs> for our and, programs. Uh, and our just federal. because and just because you don't take the money doesn't mean you still don't have to have all the compliance and and requirements that go with that. And bigger point. You still have to pay it. Yeah. So if we don't take the federal money, we are sending our money to the feds to use in other states instead right. of ours. And we're not going to have an educational budget that fills the gaps. So programs like Future Farmers Associations getting $12.5 million from the federal government in two pots alone. That's not the entire thing just for our farm and ag programs. You know, uh, 600 
uh, I forget how many millions of dollars, 900 and something million dollars uh, federal funding is coming in. That's our taxpayer money that funds our special education programs, that funds our after-school programs, our tutoring programs, our vocational programs, our FFA programs, our ag programs, funds our free and reduced lunches. We can see that through data, policy, and research. And so if we make a judgment call and say, okay, we want these things, we want our kids educated, how is the biggest impact? What we, If we want a good economic growth, if we want to be a top 10 state, what does that actually look like at the foundational level? And the foundational level, that's infrastructure, that's uh, education, and that's healthcare. Mm -hmm. Those are the three things that are foundational to our state if we want to move up the ladder. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about just like investment, you know, and and it and it sounds like, you know, the positive side of it. But I think to your point, this is dollars left on the table, you know, that if any good business person had money that they could spend, they wouldn't turn that away. It feels like, you know, we're we're trying to talk about, you know, schools, these things are not business issues, but ultimately they are economic issues within our communities. Well, the number one economic driver is education. If you have no workforce, no businesses come. Like I started off as a vocational education teacher. I created workers. So as far as academics and people that hate academics, I am the most business-friendly academic. (laughs) (laughs) I create certificates and workers and put them into the jobs. all teachers do this. I'm not saying that we all don't, but if you look at it from that thing, if the goal of education is to create an economy that's growing, then you have to have quality product. You have to have people coming out of the education programs that are quality. To have quality product, you have to have investment. Uh, It's flat out. (laughs) Do you think we'll ever get to a time in our state, I'm a glass half full gal, that we realize that education is a workforce. It's one of the largest workforces in our state. And for many communities, it's the largest employers in that community. And that instead of trying to bring other, and it's great that we're bringing other workforces into our state to help our state, but when are we going to start realizing we need to invest in our workforce that we already have? Well, um, Again, I like numbers and I like trend lines. And right now we are in, uh, the best I can compare it to is McCarthyism red scare. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the public population, and it really goes back to COVID. And this is something I've told my teacher groups. Um, public sentiment towards education is at an all-time low. Uh, the, the poll numbers are showing that people do not trust public education, public education. And that's because the three years of the students being at home, being having those lack of resources, people forgot. And we have to change and we have to have educational reform to bring back the culture that education is there. And that education reform has to be led by the education educators. Uh, we have to figure out what pathway fixes the culture that's surrounding us, why we got put into this pigeonhole and how do we address it? Now, I have some ideas on how to do that and some of the root causes of it, but this is, unless we get past this culture of hatred and distrust, we don't go into a time frame where people build public education back up. Um, and I don't see it changing in the next few years. Um, 
as the schools open back up and as people are re-engaging with their programs and the kids are all the way back in and sports are happening and after school programs, the sentiment will start to change again. And we're seeing that a little bit, but we need teachers. We need public education people that are viable and vocal to start engaging more because teachers don't vote. Public employees don't vote. Public advocates don't vote. And so we're hearing from 3% of the population that is screaming at this alternative. And the other 97 is sitting on their hands and saying, um, we just don't have any faith in the system either. So we're not going to do anything. Yeah. Uh, we have to change the culture if we want investment. Yeah. It is, it is that small number that is very loud yes. that is driving the narrative. And the majority of Oklahomans that want great public schools, we want great infrastructure, we want healthcare, we want all those things that we know that make us a great state, they feel like their voice doesn't matter. Yeah. And it does. It does. I mean, to know that 2 million people aren't even voting in our state, 1 million that's not a registered, 1 million is registered, and they're not voting. Yeah, it's, we are a red state, all 77 counties, but people forget we've only been a red state for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, we were a blue <laughs> state and a purple state. Like this, this pendulum is, is here. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying I am a Republican, so people understand I, I've been a Republican my whole life. But you have to engage. You can't just feel like you're being blocked out. Um, and it, it really is negative. Like my own election, we had like 5,000 people vote. Um, that's horrendous. I had 45,000 people in my uh, district uh, in Ryan Walters' election. 3% of Republicans will wind up voting for Ryan Walters. Uh, how? <laughs> if one county showed up in force, a single county, you would have swayed that election. You would have swayed any of the elections. Numbers matter. Numbers matter. Data matters. <laughs> um, one other one that you had just recently talked about, and it's something we've talked about on our podcast too recently, is just the mental health um, mm. across our state and, you know, supports that need are needed both, um, but especially in communities that don't have access to mental health. Oh, um, so what are, what are some of your thoughts on mental health and what we can do about that? Uh, you know, if the... Uh, COVID was a pandemic, uh, mental health is endemic. Uh, we are leading the nation on suicide rates. Um, our suicide rate of teenage girls successful went up 50%. That is unheard of. Uh, the young boys, 35% increase in suicide rates over the last couple of years. And this is, this is success, not attempts, not uh, any of that. This is, they have successfully uh, ended their, their life. Our veterans, we are number one in the nation of veteran suicide. Uh, more veterans come here and pass away here than any other nation in, or any other state in the nation. Uh, now, that ties in the fact that we are one of the most pro-military states as well. They come here for services, and so we have a huge population. But per capita, we are still almost twice as high as any other state. Uh, we are horribly um, physically unhealthy. We have a massive lack of resources outside of Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. And it's just th those tendrils I was talking about earlier were the belt buckle of the sex traffic trade. And so when those people come here and they get rescued, we have eight beds for human trafficking in Oklahoma. So what happens to the thousands of human traffic victims when they're here in Oklahoma and they don't have services? 
that's a massive issue of mental health. Uh, any of the bullying, our bullying numbers are horrible in Oklahoma. Our young uh, ACE scores are through the roof because we are a high poverty state. Yeah. So when you're dealing with those young kids that turn into adults and they're still dealing with their ACE scores of like, you know, hoarding food and hunger and yeah. uh, that generational poverty, we don't have any resources in place to help them overcome those issues. Now we have a growing mental health online presence and that's been magical <laughs> but again it goes back to broadband we don't have any broadband connection for them to get onto it but if we don't get people to the rural areas and to the growing areas we're not going to have any change in that position now i will give it to the state uh, legislation body uh, josh west uh, the minority floor leader uh, no, no, i think that's his title created the state's uh, mental health caucus. And so I've said it many times, the, the first step to mental health is removing uh, the stigma surrounding it. Uh, talking about it is the first step. Yeah. And you had a huge bicameral, bipartisan group of legislators get together in a room and say, this is a real issue. Uh, we attacked a waiting list and the waiting list is over. Like it's fully funded and that's gonna go away. That's gonna help a lot of our uh, disabled students or disabled Oklahomans uh, get those services that they need. Yeah. So there are steps the legislative body is taking but they need to increase dramatically. And we need to recruit and retain, just like we do with teachers, those mental health professionals because yeah. they're also leaving. Now our nurses are leaving, our teachers are leaving. Any of our academic high uh, requirement fields are leaving Oklahoma. Uh, we're having a massive brain drain and we have to plug that hole. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. just make sure you go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And, and but, but I do think to your point, it's, you know, if we don't bring it up and, and, and everything is a part of something else. It, you know, there's no standalone problem in our state that doesn't impact other parts of our state, you know, and so if we lift up more mental health, that's, that's going to help the schools, and I, I just think it's important that we talk about, and hearing that there's a, that there's a bipartisan, you know, group working on that is, is great. Yeah, I so appreciate that. I, my uh, 23 years that I was in the classroom, I taught students with disabilities, specifically in the area of emotional disturbance, mm -hmm. And I and I have watched for 23 years the lack of services, the lack of beds that are available for um, for our young folks that that need those services. And but more importantly, the services for the families oh, yes. that that needed that support. And so, um, thank you for lifting up that work and 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 talking about it because it needs to be talked about. Our kids. Their well-being is so valuable, and we need to be embracing that more than ever. For and by golly, let's talk about for the last two now going on three years, everyone has lived through trauma. Yes, we have lived through trauma. We've lived through a pandemic, and and we're not talking about it. No, um, and I think people forget that side of COVID. Uh, I just we focus on education based. 62% of our kids have free and reduced lunches. You know, the schools try to pick that up. So that means 62% of our kids are living in such poverty that many of them don't have access to food. So yeah. for three years, they were food insecure. Yeah. That leaves a mark that lasts generations. I myself grew up in poverty. I had to come to a little 
a realization one day in my 30s that I opened my cupboard and realized I was a food order because <laughs> uh, of the insecurities I had as a child that I had to yeah. you know, work through that and deal with those and those problems from my own childhood. Those leave lasting marks on generations. And you know, my work at the Tulsa Boys Home, we knew that if we didn't help the families, once the boy got out of our programs, through the counseling, through everything, you put him right back in the same place, you get the exact same outcome. Well, um, I guess my final question for you is you have always been a strong advocate against vouchers. Um, we were yeah. always appreciative of your voice. And um, do you see yourself continuing to try to explain to people why vouchers aren't going to help our public schools? <laughs> I am adamantly against vouchers because it makes zero sense. Uh, so <laughs> well, that's I good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> enrolled into GIS courses so I can learn mapping to prove my theory <laughs> that these are not good. And I've done it. Uh, I've took the data from those private schools, which is hard to get. Yeah. Um, I've broken it down and I can now definitively prove that a private school is only in about 12 counties of comprehensive school. That leaves a whole lot of our counties that will never have access to a private school that vouchers will ever benefit. And right now, if you don't change the population of how many students are enrolled in private schools versus public schools, and you take the voucher bill from last year and put that into effect, about 50% of the students inside private schools that are actively there now will get a voucher for between $11,000 to $17,000. That will immediately pull $280 million out of our private, our public schools without a single student changing over. Yep. That will bankrupt my rural communities. Uh, I did it. I'm breaking it down right now by counties, and I got maps that will be coming up here pretty show, soon that will show you in your county how much this will cost you in your county, how many seats of teachers it will cost you, and do you even have access to a private school where your kids might benefit. And the reality is, if you're not in Tulsa, Oklahoma City, you're not going to benefit from it. But $280 million immediately, the second that goes in effect, pulled from our public schools, bankrupting almost every rural community school. I will still be adamantly opposed to vouchers and educating as best as I can. Well, we will be right there behind you and championing your work. Yes, yes. It. We look forward to seeing that um, that data. So, and hope it does drive the policy here in Oklahoma. <laughs> So, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was so great to talk with you and look forward to what happens next for you. I appreciate that. I appreciate you guys letting me on and still listening to somebody that's not going to be in office anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take some time and catch up with Catherine. Whoa, this week, Ellen, have you felt it? There was kind of a shift that happened. Uh, we saw new poll numbers come out. Um, listening to Logan Phillips and all the data and making data decisions, mm -hmm. decisions based on data. Yeah. It's just been fascinating to watch. Yeah. And I think, you know, the for our listeners, we um, interviewed Phil, Logan Phillips representative Phillips last week. Yeah. And so they can go to Facebook now and see the yeah. data that he was telling us about, yeah. about his maps are out. Yeah. What voucher, how the impact that will have on every County yeah. in the state of yeah. Oklahoma. Um, but, but polling, I mean, I think we, there's momentum yes. right now. Yeah. It, momentum 
that drives hope. Yes. And I think that's what I'm, it's just kind of this encouragement to say, not to get ahead of ourselves or mm-hmm. anything like that, not to become complacent, but that people are listening. They're leaning in, they're listening, they're becoming aware of what's going on. And they're, which tells me also that they're getting out of the political rhetoric piece of it. Mm-hmm. They're really digging in and they're finding out what's going on and what they need to do. And another interesting part that was just released this week is that um, in the state of Oklahoma, we are now the fifth. Um, we talk about people registering to vote. Yeah. Well, the fifth highest group of women that have chosen to register this elected, we're the fifth in the nation for women <laughs> registering, newly registered women. Wow. That's what I'm trying to Cause, say, people. Because <laughs> I remember the statistic, it was that 18 to 35 women, 18 to 35 were the lowest registered. So that's incredible. Yeah. That people, are, people are paying attention. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, yesterday, September 15th, kicked off Hispanic Heritage Month. And it's, it's such a great time, um, you know, to really focus on, for educators especially, the the importance of um, Hispanic Americans and their ancestors in the role that they play. We are a melting pot here in our country. Absolutely. And we need to make sure that we honor those cultures and we pay tribute to them. And so um, we have great resources on our website. So go check it out. I, I love what we do for all of our um, months that we have and resources that we have for teachers. It's going to be great. Yeah. Go check it out. But also next week, September 20th is National Voter Registration Day. Big day. It's like a national push to get people registered in the Oklahoma Policy Institute from one one o'clock to eight o'clock is going to have a live stream and they're going to be pushing out the importance of voter registration. And our vice president, Carrie Elledge, is going to be on there on a panel from at 305 to 350, to be exact, um, is going to be on a panel with other educators from across our state to talk about the importance of education on the ballot. It's on the ballot and what we need to do and how we need to get people registered and have their voices heard. So we're looking forward to that next week. Awesome. So September 20th. September 20th. Register. Ask your neighbor. Are they registered? Yep. That's your day. Talk to people. Yes. Well, we want to thank Logan Phillips for joining us today. And thank you for listening to Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Ellen Pogamiller with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Catherine Bishop, president of OEA. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review Fried Okra on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at friedokrapodcasts at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, keep fighting the good fight for public education.